So how do you clean up a big mess? Or perhaps even in particular, how do you clean up a mess that you've created? That is uh, the situation that Ezra walks into in these final two chapters of the book. Uh, We see Ezra as a priest who has devoted himself uh, to the studying of God's word, to the doing of God's word, and to the teaching of God's word. Because of that, the good hand of God was on him. He leads a group of people back to Jerusalem so that they can do the work of beautifying the temple as well as teaching the people of the ways of the law. And so you have this great picture of restoration that is being undertaken. Remember, uh, we're about 60 years removed from the first half of the book and here now in the second half with this new generation and teaching them how they need to do things for God. And, and chapter 9 of Ezra opens with the big mess that Ezra now has to figure out how to Clean up. You'll notice Ezra chapter 9 in verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Just start with the first problem right here is that. It is almost stunning to read that first sentence because that was the very reason that they had been gone into captivity in the first place. Why Jerusalem was destroyed, why the temple was destroyed is because they had adopted the practices of the surrounding people. They were acting like the Canaanites and some of the prophets even said, and worse than them and some of the things you do. And now here, 60 years after coming back onto the land, Amazingly, they are doing the very same practices of the peoples and the very long list of all the ites that are there among the Canaanites and doing those very things that God said when they came into the land they were not supposed to do. Further, you'll notice in verse 2 it says that they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. Yet, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been the foremost. So not only are they adopting all the practices, they are absolutely violating what God also said to do in the land, which was to keep a separation from the Canaanites. Now, you were not supposed to marry any of the Canaanite people. Sometimes people misread them. They weren't to marry any foreigners. That wasn't the case. But the Canaanites and the people in that land. But notice they've come back to the land. They're committing the practices. They're keeping those abominations of what had caused the Canaanites to be overthrown and what had caused the Israelites to be taken off of the land. And now they've married the people that are there. And most notably, you will notice the end of verse 2 says... And the leaders of the people are the ones who are at the forefront of this. They have led the way in these abominations and doing the very things that God had called for them not to do. And the rest of chapter 9 is Ezra's response to learning about this news. His response to finding out that after all of this time and now finally being back on the land... To now know that they have gone into this circumstance of keeping these abominations. Verse 3, it says, as soon as I heard this, 
I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled the hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Now, you probably don't understand some of that, but that's a, a Middle East, near, near, ancient Near Eastern way of saying you're really distressed and upset. Pulling your beard hurts. <laughs> that has nothing to do. What you're seeing here is a picture of how outraged Ezra is at this. He is just amazed that they would have done something like this. So he tears his garment, tears his his robe, pulls the hair from his head, pulls the hair from his beard. And you will notice as he's doing this in verse 4, it says, And all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel... Because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until evening sacrifice. So for a whole day, Ezra just sits there and is just blown away by what the people have done. And the people who have a sense and a concern for the will and the word of God see Ezra doing this. And they're concerned. They kind of come and they surround him and and sit with him and are waiting to see what's going to happen. Verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. And I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now for a brief moment... Favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? And intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. 
That's quite a prayer. (laughs) Once the day is done with the grief and the distress and some of the people have gathered around him, he just offers up this intercessory prayer. And I want you to notice a couple aspects of the things that he does in this prayer. Number one, he just admits the shame of, of, of their sinning, just Uh, An amazing picture to come before God and say, here are the things that we have done. And he just says, I'm ashamed of this. Verse six, ashamed and I blush to lift my face. Just utterly ashamed of of hearing about the condition of the people, the condition of the land and, and what we've done. And then he goes about confessing sins. But notice he confesses the past sins. I, I found that interesting. He goes, we have been sinful from the day you came to us in Egypt. And, and this has been our problem from the very beginning, as it is even to this day. And so he confesses the history of Israel's sin before God. And then in the midst of that, acknowledges God's grace. Even though we have been sinful and broken your commandments and haven't done what is right. Verse 8, even now for a brief moment, there has been this grace in which you have given us a remnant and brought us back to the land and allowed the temple to be established. And yet even in the face of your grace and this remnant, we've abandoned your commandments yet again. And so he's just walking through the whole picture And I want you to notice what he said there in verse 13 when he says, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. That would be good on our refrigerator. Seeing that we have been punished far less than our sins deserve. And that's what he just offers up before God. I I think it is amazing to see that Ezra just seems to put this in the hands of God. Because at verse 15, as this prayer is is coming to a conclusion, he just says, you've left us a remnant here that has escaped. And now here we are before you in our guilt and who can stand like we just deserve absolute punishment and are doomed because we have done again the very thing you told us not to do. And the very thing that brought judgment upon us only 100 years earlier has now come back and happened again. In the midst of this great response and prayer as Ezra intercedes on behalf of the people, you will notice that we talked about that there were people around him. Verse 1 of chapter 10 says that while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble. At the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task. We are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. And so they took the oath. By the way, that's a good play into this morning. Oath's okay. (laughs) 
interesting picture that's given here in this scene is now as they see Ezra weeping and distraught and listen to the words of his prayer, you will notice that an individual that we really know nothing about whatsoever, verse 2 drops his name as Shechaniah and here's his father and grandfather. We don't know anything else about him. But I want you to notice what he says. He comes up there at the end of verse 2 and says, but even now there's hope. We have broken faith. We have been completely unfaithful before God. We have done what is wrong. And yet he says, there is still hope. And he says in verse 3, what we need to do is make a covenant with God to put away the wives and their children. Now, I think this is interesting conclusion that they draw. And what I want to do is just make some observations about what we see happening here at this moment. First, I think it is useful to notice that when he makes that suggestion in verse five, Ezra does not get up and say, that is a ridiculous idea. Nor does he get up and say, that's a completely unbiblical idea. Remember, he's of the priestly lineage. Remember, he has devoted himself to the study of the law, the doing of the law, and the teaching of the law. Rather, you'll notice in verse 5, he agrees with the assessment. And it says, you all need to make a covenant to do this very thing. And so he agrees with what they are doing. And I think two observations to make with this. Number one, it is important to see that the people are self-motivated. I think this is an important moment here of what repentance really looks like. Is you see here that the people are so moved at the conviction of their sin. And so moved by the grace of God that they determine that they need to do something about this. I need to respond. I need to act. What can I do in this moment? And that's what you see the people wanting. It is very similar to the pictures you see in the New Testament of what true repentance looks like, where you have like in Acts 2, the people are cut to the heart. So what are we going to do? What can we do about this? And that's what the people here are putting together. What are we going to do? And they have a conclusion that there is hope for us. There is a way for us to get right with God. The second thing that I want to look at and consider for our conclusion and really some observation about what is happening in this scene is you will notice something in particular that is, that is said in, in, ver, in, verse, in verse 3 after looking at this. In verse 3, you will notice it says that Shechaniah said, let's make a covenant with our, our God. And he says to put away these wives and children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who trembled the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Where did the law ever say to do this? Where did God ever say in the law? And if you do go into the land of Canaan and you marry these women that you're not supposed to marry and do those very things that I commanded you not to do, then here's what you need to do. It doesn't. Nowhere in the law of Moses does it give this explanation as here is what you are supposed to do to resolve that. 
So I think it is interesting that here these people who are cut to the heart, they are repentant. Here is Ezra, a priest and a teacher of the law who has studied the word, who is doing the word, who is teaching the word. And they come to him and say, here's what we know we're supposed to do according to the law. We need to put away these wives and these children. And Ezra doesn't go, you know, I don't see that in the scroll anywhere. Where where did you get that idea? He agrees with it and says, that's right. Take an oath now that that's exactly what you're going to do. And that will be the path that we'll go. I think it is important that the answer then becomes clear. Why does Ezra agree to it? Why is this action being done? Why is it said that it's being done according to the law when the law doesn't even say it? Well, in a broad sense, the answer is because a person can't continue in sin and think that grace may abound. Or to put it more specifically, if a marriage is unlawful to God, then the solution is not to stay in that marriage. That's what's being shown here. That's what's amazingly brought out. They drew their own conclusion from that. Ezra didn't stand up and just start yelling at him. They go, we know what we have to do. We know this is wrong. We know this is sin. And the solution is not for st- to stay in this. He says, there's hope for us yet. Here's the path that we need to take. We need to put an end to these marriages so that we can be right with God. This is the only hope to stop this sinning. Now, I want you to see what happens next, because this is very important to the flow of what Ezra is trying to show us. You'll notice then as we come into chapter six, I mean, not chapter six, verse six of chapter 10, Ezra continues to be praying before God seems to be interceding on behalf of the people before the house of God. In verse six, he's fasting, he's not eating, he's not drinking, he is mourning over the sins of the people. And a proclamation now is made in verse 7 for everybody in Israel needs to gather at Jerusalem. We're going to have a big get together, have everybody at Jerusalem. And we have a proclamation that needs to be made. Verse 10. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers and to do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so we must do as you have said. But the people are many and it is the time of heavy rain and we cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two days. For if we have greatly transgressed in this matter, let our officials stand for the whole assembly Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them, the elders and the judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. The rest of the section is is Ezra then agreeing to that. Verses 16 and 17 tell us it takes them about three months to go through the process of, of doing this. And then the rest of the book just puts a list of all the people who had violated this covenant and had pledged to do this very work. And the text ends with, and all of these, verse 44, had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Now let's talk about something else we need to observe about what happens here. Because I think it is interesting that Ezra stands up and says, 
Okay, you've broken the covenant. You haven't done what you've said you were supposed to do. You're supposed to remain faithful to God, but instead you have committed these abominations. You've married the women of the land, which God expressly said not to do. And the people stand up and they say, you realize that what we need to do is we're needing to going to put judges and, and, and leaders in each of the cities. And it's going to take a lot of time for us to go through this process. And it's not going to take one day or two days, but a really long time for us to do all this. And here's what I want to ask. Why was this process going to take months? And why was this process going to require judges? Why not just have everybody go, yep, I did wrong, okay, deal with it right then and there, over and done. Why is this a long process? Why do we need judges? Well, I think as we think about it in terms of what is happening in this scene, uh, I I think this is the, the best way to understand why this would take such a significant amount of time is there needs to be a determination on how we're going to separate from this sin while still maintaining the commitments that were made to these women and children. You have to especially understand in that day and time, you wouldn't have put her away and she would have got a job over at the bank and she'd just take care of her children and everything would just be all fine, well and good and they'd all just live all all, all alone like that. That's not how that worked. To be separated like this, like you see in the book of Ruth, to not have someone who is providing for you and caring for you would have been devastating. And never mind the fact that these are clearly also their children. And I I think it is interesting to consider, do you suppose that if there was any possible solution besides this one, that these people would have wanted to take it? Some other other way to do this, some other way to deal with this, to get right with God. And yet there's not. This is the way that they needed to go to get right with God. And yet in the process, they needed to figure out how to, I would put it like this, follow God's will by ending the unlawful marriage while at the same time fulfilling God's will to do right by these families. That's pretty complex. And that's probably going to take some spiritual judges. It's going to take some time. And it's not as simple as, oh, I did wrong. Okay, bye. But to work through what are we going to do to provide for these women and for these children and work through that very process. I think that is an important picture that is given to us here. That there is spiritual wisdom that is needed to sort out what needs to be done. And that's why we see such a significant amount of time uh, that is being allotted here and to be able to accomplish the task. And I think this is important for us for our consideration, especially in our day and time. Because it is important to understand that we are going to need wisdom and we are going to need compassion on those who come to Jesus and understand the complication that they're going to have in trying to sort out how are we going to go forward in doing God's will while at the same time I have this mess that's been created that I need to do right by. And that process can take time and take spiritual wisdom and a whole lot of figuring out. 
And I think this is a great example of what ultimately that looks like, of helping people walk through those circumstances. And the more that we grasp that we live in a day and a time where we've talked about this morning where marriage is just considered as nothing and it's, uh, the marriage license is basically written on Kleenex and nobody cares to follow what God says and maintain marriage for life, we're going to have to understand that we're going to be talking to people with complicated circumstances. And the key that we want to show is that there must be a way to show them the necessity of holding fast to the truth that there are sinful marriages that cannot be stayed in, while at the same time having the wisdom and compassion to walk them through what they need to do about it. That's what I think Ezra's doing. Is here is a circumstance that is very dire and very serious, and their only hope to get right before God is to solve that. And yet Ezra appoints judges and leaders to help them walk through that process so that they can get right with God. All right, so let's draw some conclusions then in this method. What we see presented in these two chapters, I think, gives us a really great picture of what we are supposed to do and how to appropriately approach God when we are confronted by our unfaithfulness and confronted by our sin. And the way Ezra comes before God and the picture of this path that he takes in praying to God and getting right before God, I I think is truly beautiful. First thing you see Ezra doing, humility. He just has great humility about the whole situation. Tears his clothes. He is weeping. He is dismayed. He is upset. He is convicted by the sins of the people. And so he immediately wants to go to God in prayer and is pleading before God in that circumstance. Number two, there's a beauty in the fact that what you see Ezra doing in that prayer is he confesses the glory and the grace of God. Throughout that, he keeps saying, God, you've been so good to us. We haven't done right, and yet you've shown grace. We do not deserve to have a remnant, and yet you've kept your word and brought us back to this place. And here we are, and we have a temple again. He confesses the grace of God and the glory of God as he goes to that prayer. Then you see him confess his own failure and the sinfulness of the, of the nation. And think about Ezra's prayer. There's no excuses. His repentance for the people and his intercession for the people is very genuine because he just simply says, our sins are as high as the heavens. There's no, well, you know, things were tough and you know how it is trying to come back to the land. And, you know, what'd you expect? There's not, there's a whole lot of Canaanites here and not a whole lot of Israelites. You know, what are we supposed to do about this? There's no excuses. He just simply says our guilt and our sins are all the way to the sky and and we are worthy of, of judgment. And yet in the midst of all of that, there is this desire to do right. What can I do about the circumstance? That's what Ezra's pleading about. That's what the people step in and say. All right, well, what are we going to do about this circumstance? How can we get right before God? How can we resolve this? We want to make a commitment to do right before God. And after they make that commitment, you will notice that they follow through on that. I can't imagine how hard it would have been for these people to do this. 
And I think it's so easy for us to just read black and white on a page and go, okay, yeah, you know, that was sin and they got married and they shouldn't have done that. And so then they did this and then, and okay, good. That's real people. And those are real relationships and real children and real families. And I can assure you that would be the last thing they'd want to do. And yet they do. Even as time went by, Ezra says, you need to hold to your conviction. Hold to your desire to do what's right and carry it through. And over those months, that's exactly what they do. And then finally, understanding that repentance is a process. Perhaps sometimes the reason we can fail in moving forward in repentance is because we can think about repentance as merely a point in time. Okay, here are my sins. I'm sorry. I'm going to do better. Okay, all done, right? No. (laughs) You have not only all of the temptations and all of the difficulties going forward, you have all the mess that's been created in your past. And now you're going to try to go forward and do what is right. And that's going to be a process, a process of doing the right thing in the face of the sin, in the face of the difficulty, and in the face of the temptations that lie before you going forward, which are going to want to pull you back into the sin that you already had. And so we have to, I think, have a better vision about what repentance is going to look like as we help people move through that process that you're not going to just have success because you came before God and said, okay, you got me, I'm sorry, and I need to repent, and now tomorrow's going to all be so much easier. It's not. But now is the time for a resolve to move through that process of attempting to do what is right and to follow through to do right by God and to do right by others as we seek to live according to God's will. What Ezra does here, I think, is a a powerful template of how we can approach God when we are convicted by sin, to really come to him with this kind of heart and this kind of mentality and this kind of desire to do right, can do great things as we attempt to deal with our sins and try to get right before him. And I hope the severity of the illustration that's used in Ezra about their situation reminds us that the most important thing we can do is our need to get right before God. The most important thing is the rescue of our souls. The most important thing is eternity with God. And there can be an awful lot of things that we have to endure and suffer and deal with consequences here in this life as we prepare ourselves to get ready for the life to come. But we have to understand that those sacrifices are worth it so that we can be where God wants us to be. There's a reason why last week when Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. He's really trying to communicate to us the necessity of doing all we can to remove the burdens of sin, to get right before God so that we can have eternity with him. Let's go to God in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, the challenge of repentance in the face of our unfaithfulness can often be overwhelming. And Lord, sometimes because of the magnitude of our sins, we can be fearful of repentance. 
Lord, sometimes we can feel it's just easier to ignore our sins rather than truly be repentant and desire to do right and desire to get right with you. So, Lord, I pray that in those moments you would expose our hearts to ourselves and help us to see that that's what's going on. And Lord, I pray that you would always give us a conviction to cut out whatever sinning is in our life, no matter how difficult that may be. Help us, Lord, to embrace getting right by you, turning, truly turning away from sin, and help us to truly humble ourselves before you and before your law. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for all of our times that we have just fallen so woefully short of what you've wanted us to do. Forgive us for when we've tried to hide our sins. Forgive us when we have not been truly repentant and have tried to carry on a double life. Lord, help us in this process of getting right before you to have the courage to take the right steps the courage to turn away from selfishness and to choose your ways and your will above all else. Help us to act wisely in that effort as we strive to serve you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, what a great book of Ezra. Looking forward to coming back to this soon, but anytime I start a new series, I always tell you I'm so excited about the new series and I'm excited about what we'll be doing on Sunday night and talking more about some great pictures of hope with God in terms of a fabulous book. Zechariah is the revelation of the Old Testament that people avoid because of its amazing pictures in it. And yet it is a book that was written to give people hope and encourage them to seek the Lord and to return to him. And so we're going to unfold those pictures because we noted that Haggai and Zechariah are at the same time as when uh, these events have all been unfolding. So we're going to look at that and then we'll get to come back to this book and look at it a little bit more. All right. Uh, go sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. Turn away from your sin. The picture of Ezra here is great. Truly repentant heart that really desires to seek God. Can we help you do that? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?